Welcome all, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book. I watched a movie. This week, we're doing The Irishman, or I Heard You Paint Houses. It's interesting. They have the title in the film as well, at, yeah. at the beginning and the end, which I thought was, they have both titles. I mm -hmm. thought it was really interesting, but I liked it a lot. We'll get into how the author collaborated at the very end and why they put two titles for the same movie. Very interesting. Good. Yeah. I, want, I wanted to know more about that. But if you didn't know, and I didn't know, I just went into the movie cold. I hadn't seen any trailers. This is about, at its root, Jimmy Hoffa, the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. I had no idea. It took me an hour into the movie to kind of really realize that this is where the movie was going. <laughs> Which is fine, because the movie is three and a half hours long. It, it oh, is the God. most expensive movie that Martin Scorsese has ever made. Real quick. Yeah. Three and a half hours. I, I started it one morning at 10 a.m., I didn't finish it until after 5 p.m. I was texting my girlfriend in the middle, like, this is the Bermuda Triangle of movies. I still have a whole movie left. It was after 3 p.m., but I still had an hour and a half <laughs> left, and I don't know where my day went and what happened to me. It is the longest movie he's ever made. <laughs> and it's on Netflix. So Gosh. you might have watched it if you're listening to this or you're interested in watching it. But yeah, it's about Jimmy Hoffa. And for some historical context of who this guy is and why it was so important that he disappeared and potentially why... The mafia hit it. Nobody knows anything. Nobody's saying anything. And also why there's a million theories about what happened. So he's a labor leader, meaning leading the unions, the Teamsters specifically, which was truck driving. And then it expanded into farm workers right. and chauffeurs and all different kinds of stuff. I knew he was the union, you know, the Teamster union guy. And that somehow he had, a, there was a power dynamic that set him up in a feud with the president and the Kennedys. And I right. never got that how it is that somebody like that has that much power against right. somebody like the president is so really the, politically that has that much momentum behind them. Mm -hmm. So the unions from 50 to 70 thereabouts was when Jimmy Hoffa was the main dude on this. In the first two years following World War II, there were 8,000 strikes in 48 states, which is about oh, 160 right. per year per state that were going on with these So people came home from the war and they were Joined being taken companies. advantage of? Yeah. What, is that the situation? Yeah, and it was just like, we need equal pay, we need mm -hmm. these rights, we need to stick together as truck drivers or as meat packers yeah, yeah, or yeah. as steel workers or as janitors, whatever it might be, because we're being taken advantage of by these larger companies mm -hmm. who are combining us all together. But that was just crazy to me. Like, we don't think about it. Imagine 160 strikes per year per state going on with all of these different labor forces. They got an issue. They got an issue. They need somebody to lead them. Here comes this guy running the game. The other part of it was that he was huge on television. He, this is when television is coming about. He's very vocal. He's very game, brash. Yeah. He's all over the, the place. First, the first presidential debate is, is televised, mm -hmm. I think, in the 60. Mm -hmm. That is a lot of how he gains popularity. And then the other part of it is the mob is involved yeah. in all of this. So they have their fingers in a lot of pie as far as being involved in the unions and having their people involved and taking cuts from things. The biggest thing that I didn't realize was, and this becomes a big part in the movie, also just to let everybody know we're going to spoil everything in the movie. Yeah, this will be a spoiler-heavy episode, so just be, be warned. I mean, usually we talk about plots and stuff, but we don't you know, shine a lights on direct things. But it, in this case, it's kind of it's hard all, to talk about any of this yeah. stuff without being specific. Yeah. A big part of the movie is how they're giving out loans. Like the mob owns a certain part of the pension fund from the Teamsters. Hmm. And that is what then they're using to give loans to the mob to buy real estate, casinos mostly. 
and then they would of course pay them back with interest, or whatever. But it was it's it kind was, of brilliant that the mob is able to to embed themselves in a legitimate legal organization and run as cover. Mm-hmm. It's kind of brilliant. It's just a big laundering scheme. So by 1974, the Teamsters had one billion dollars loaned to real estate ventures oh my through the pension fund, mostly to the mob. What year? 1974. Oh, wow. So this is 80% of Chase Manhattan Bank's oh, loans. So they are one of the largest financial institutions oh. in terms of loaning for real estate. And it's all coming through this illegitimate pension fund. And it's all going to the mob. Oh, my gosh. So that was happening through the back half of the 50s, all through the 60s. Yeah. So this is then why you can see why it goes all the way up the chain and why oh, giant people in national positions of power would be like, we got to fix all this. This whole thing, the unions, the mob, everything, real estate, everything is context on, on, on the Kennedy situation. Not mm-hmm. only, I mean, was uh, Hoffa and the Kennedys feuding now I mean, publicly, but I mean, remember the president was shot in 63 and then his brother was shot in 68. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty chaotic time. This is just another side of it that I'm like, as soon as I realized this is where it was going and that even it would just touch on the Kennedy stuff, mm-hmm. I went, oh my God, I could grip my seat. Let's go. Yeah. Um, kind of I'm, like I'm with into the, this. Yeah. Stuff. Kind of like with the Ford versus Ferrari, where we're talking about how the story is actually about Ken Miles, the random driver. Mm-hmm. This story is about the Irishman. Frank Sheeran, who some people describe as the Forrest Gump of organized crime, because he just happens to be, according to this book, in every major situation involved in the mafia yeah, th- from this time. They play out several historical assassinations, some, a lot of which are unsolved. And, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and this is as I'm kind of figuring out what the movie is about. And, and there, was, there was a murder, it was Gallo's murder uh, outside of the uh, Umberto's Clam House. And I'm yeah. like, I've seen these photos. Isn't this supposed to be unsolved? Oh, wow. And and so that that feeling, exactly what you said, I laugh at it when you say it, but uh, it is exactly kind of how I felt. Obviously, the author of this book, who spent years with this guy, believes him because he wrote the book. But there's a lot of people that don't. I'll link to some articles where people are refuting it. I don't necessarily care who – it's like the mafia killed him. Jimmy right. Hoffa. Some of these other miscellaneous things, it's like somebody in the mafia did it, whether it was this Irishman, Frank Sheeran, whether it was somebody else. It's just an event that I think people are, it's shocking when mm-hmm. it, it's not fake, man. The guy went missing. This is somebody that's on TV all the time. He's a famous public figure. And then he really did just disappear. It's captivating. Yeah. And, and the fact that that can happen, it can just play out in real life on the street. I mean, it's unsettling. And nobody says anything, and now everybody is either in jail or dead, or like this Frank Sheeran guy exposing everything. credit for it. But he might be lying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He might have lied about everything. He might have lied about everything. Everything might be true. It might be be one or the other. There are so many theories about what happened to him. You have so many people, like uh, Richard Kuklinski is a very famous, Mm -hmm. very famous murderer called The Iceman. They made movies about him. He took credit for the Hoffa murder with only in the last like last decade or so or something. Or- yeah, the, the book is called The Iceman Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer. It came out in 2006, right. two years after this book came out. And he claimed that he threw him in an oil drum and then welded it shut and then put it in a car. And then the car got smashed and sent to Japan. And yeah. <laughs> like I all this that. crazy yeah. stuff. According to the author of this book, there are 14 people that have claimed to kill Hoffa. Yeah. So it's like that's how that's how crazy it is. So whether or not, just as a huge preface, this is true or not, this is this guy's story, this and this is, one is the way, story maybe. that got turned into the fictional account, which is the movie The Irishman. 
I, I was surprised because I had looked at little bits and pieces of the movie, how true they stick to the, the elements from the book, yeah. and which is also why the movie is so long. But there's a lot of stuff that as I go through what he talks about in the book and how it connects to some other things in real life, mm-hmm. how many elements they took from oh, the fantastic. book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I figured with that kind of runtime and the and there's the painstaking detail that you can just see and feel on the screen in every frame, it's, the book has got to be so rich with some of this or at least just get point in 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 so many directions for them to go i mean it was it just it was it's very very rich with texture of yeah. your, your time period and your feel and and a lot of people are talking about the cg that's been used to de-age and then mm-hmm. de-age up age <laughs> every all all it, it's insane and i gotta say for myself didn't bother me that much because like we're, we're talking about a story that that takes place over 30 years or, or, right. or more and I guarantee you if you think that you can pick out every piece of this de-aging up aging <laughs> you can't and you're gonna be they're gonna be sections of this film that you think are de-aged up it they're not uh, you're not gonna be able to pick it out in every scene it's very good and as somebody who's worked in visual effects there's a lot that's not been done to them, and there's a lot that has been done to them, and it's different in every shot and in every scene. So it's really a collage of a lot of different techniques mm. you're seeing, and it's really it's kind of it's pulled off un unjarring to me. I'm not it's not the bet it's not insane. <laughs> We're getting sometimes there. you can see it, yeah. sometimes you can't. But I thought it to be totally totally serviceable. Melts into the picture. I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. The 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 main character. So speaking of the texture and the amount of work that went into this, there are a lot of names, a lot of Italian names, a lot of Irish names, a lot of different people involved in the mob and the mafia that he goes into in this book. So I won't go into all of them, but the three big ones that you need to know, which are the actors at the front of the poster, is Frank Sheeran, who is Robert De Niro, the Russ, main character, yeah, Russ Buffalino, who is the the mafia mob guy. Up in New England, who is played by Joe Pesci, out of retirement, out of fantastic, re- by the way, yeah, and 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 he at at some points in the film looks decrepit and horrible. <laughs> it's all makeup. When you see him in real life, he actually looks really good. He's 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 probably on the younger side of the aging that they do, and he's specifically what I mean. And you're gonna say, yeah, you're gonna say, oh, he looks that's that's real life. You're they probably gonna up, be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so he's Russ Buffalino, who is the the mafia guy who is most like the godfather, Hoffa, who's the guy who gets murdered and nobody knows what happened, and that is Al Pacino. Which I think this is the first film that him and Scorsese have made together, So, like, strangely enough, even though he mm. feels he's <laughs> in that realm of all these, but this is actually the first one that he's actually made with Scorsese. So that's kind of an interesting thing. That's kind of, That's definitely a draw, I think, for at least cinema fans and fans of these actors and, these, and this filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But this Frank guy starting out, he was nine years old in 1929, Great Depression. He said nobody had money anyway, so it didn't matter. This is Philadelphia. This is Pennsylvania is where he's in, which is interesting that this Russ Buffalino mafia guy is in Pennsylvania yeah. and parts of it. He's not like the head of New York. Yeah. He's still involved in New England, but he was kind of the understated, according to this book, head of a lot of things and had his fingers in a lot of pies in New York and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But this guy doesn't know anything about it growing up. He was taught as a kid by his dad because they were so poor to kind of do malicious things. So they were stealing food from farms as a kid mm-hmm. and he got shot with bird shot. And his oh, mom really? was like, why am I always having to pick this out of his butt? And it's oh like, cause God. he's too slow. <laughs> um, but he said just as a part of it, there was no kissing, no affection. He was like, I never saw my mom kiss any 
of my siblings or me or anything. Oh, God. His first job was at the age of seven, and they kept on moving from apartment to apartment because they wouldn't have any money, and then they would just oh, go gosh. out before they, you know, just that life yeah. that you're starting out with. His dad worked a million different jobs, worked on high up on the steel beams, worked at a janitor at his school, and his dad would bet because, and I don't know if they do this in the movie to the same degree as it's made clear in the book, this dude is huge. He is six foot four. He's this giant Irish dude. He's a fighter. He doesn't uh, fit in with all these other squat Italian old men. They definitely try to make him make something of his stature, but I don't know if it's quite that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if if it reaches the the accuracy there. But, I mean, they definitely do try to do something something with his stature, Mm -hmm. but, you know, ultimately. Yeah. As a kid, his dad would use him to fight other kids and bet on him and be like, I bet my kid can beat up your kid. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And (laughs) It's like dogfighting. <laughs> yeah, but with his kid. But it's yeah. so messed up. But he's like, that's what happened. He was lived in a mostly Italian neighborhood, so that's how he learned Italian and oh, sort of yeah. endeared himself to the Italian mafia. He said it also helped later in the war when he goes into World War II and fights mostly in Italy. Mm. This is how he picked up on Italian and endeared himself to them. There was a prank that he pulled in his high school where he put some Limburger cheese in the radiator, and then his dad, who was the janitor, found it, knew it was him. And he was like, when he gets home, he knows it's going to be him. So he was like, do you want to eat first or eat after I kick your ass? <laughs> he was like, I'll eat first because yeah. I'll be, I won't be able to eat afterwards. There was a time, once he got older and realized in high school that he was able to fight people and stand up for himself, even towards adults, the principal cuffed him in the back of the head for something that he did. What? And he decked, so then he decked the principal. Oh my gosh. broke his jaw. And he knew he was going to get it when his dad got home. But then his dad threw him the boxing gloves. Because remember, his dad's See, like this is a- all the Spielberg movie. Yeah, this yeah. Is, <laughs> if Spielberg decided to do The Irishman, this would all be – this would be the setup here. Yeah, of him <laughs> and his childhood yeah. and being violent. Yeah. So his dad throws him the boxing gloves and is like, let's go. See? You know? And uh, he throws the boxing gloves back at his dad and says – See? <laughs> He says, I won't hit you, but you'd better get yourself another punching bag. Mm. And so then after that, he gets expelled from school. He's done with school. He's not going to high school anymore. He joins the carnival. Setting no up way. and tearing. Yeah, setting up and tearing down. They travel all around New England. And then he works at a logging camp. He works for a glass setter back in Philadelphia. He said it was an easy life, no responsibilities, just making money, doing odd jobs, canoodling with women, going mm-hmm. out drinking, dancing. He loved dancing so much. He loved dancing. A lot. He was a dance instructor. That I hope was that's part on of... his grave. Yeah. <laughs> he loved dancing. He really Kill, did. Also maybe killed Jimmy. <laughs> he <Unfortunately>, loved dancing. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, all that love for the easy life, World War II hits, just for some context of how insane now his life becomes. The average number of combat days for somebody was 80, and he had 411. I had that written. I had seen that too. Yeah, I thought that was just outstanding. It's I, I can't... That's a, that's a whole year. That is way over a whole year. year. If you... Just for a straight every single day. I mean, every it day. Time, but yeah, it was like that much time in the span of time that you were in the war... He also was in the craziest, like he was a part of the 45th Infantry, which eventually got under Patton's killer division. Oh, really? Where they, I mean, they were eventually, I don't know if they were tried or, but they were definitely committing war crimes where Patton was like, take no prisoners. Here's the German officers that we captured. Hurry back. Basically means you kill them. Yeah. And don't say anything. That kind of thing. So 
the author, Charles Brandt, of the book who interviewed him said this was the hardest thing to get him to talk about was his combat experiences. He was in, like I said, Italy. He said, I learned there to follow orders or else, which is probably also how later when he gets tied into the mm-hmm. mafia, he's able to just glide right in because he understands well, how that world certainly works. being primed for mm-hmm. the for the direction he's headed. Of just killing uh, people, bananas being to, told to, to hear not only the childhood, but then thrown into the most vicious war that mankind's ever seen, uh, and to be part of probably you know some of the more vicious ends of that combat, he's being primed for exactly what ends up happening. It's mm-hmm. kind of fascinating to, and that's where I'm struck right now is seeing somebody conditioned and being you know tailored on yeah yeah i mean he is headed down a a road and as we know it didn't change it didn't you know he's Mm -hmm. he's in it this and if i'm in the mob how do you find how do you find talent like that Mm -hmm. you know like that's if i'm if i'm those people that's what i'm thinking i'm like that has no connection yeah and if you had to kill him it would just like oh well then we'll just kill him and nobody knows how to do it he can do it he's proved it i I mean i think about this like hiring somebody for any other office job Mm it's like he knows how to use windows xp Mm -hmm. and has used that a model of printer before this guy is right for the yeah it's like it's it's kind of it's staggering to me uh Mm -hmm. so what are you being groomed for and that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying it to me. Where am I in my life? That yeah. you know, what's you know, where 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 am I headed? Where yeah. you know? And at this point, yeah, when he gets back from the war, he doesn't know where he's headed. He's doing random jobs all over the place. Still, seen a lot of his friends die. There was this carnival that came in because he's in the carnival, so he knows about it. And it was that you could fight a kangaroo, and if you lasted three rounds, you won a hundred bucks. Tight, which is not chump change. At the time. I think in the film, at one point later on, he becomes like a boss of the union. And there is a photograph of this <laughs> in the background of his office. Now that you say this, I think yeah. it's just something I happen to catch off, uh, just off. But I feel like, and I might be wrong, okay. but I feel like I saw that. In With the, all of the elements the from the book. Yeah, because yeah, it just looked insane. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, he <laughs> didn't fight photograph a photograph on his office yeah. wall. No, he did fight a kangaroo and won. But the, he said there was this pretty Irish lady in the third row who eventually then becomes his first wife. They married in 1947. This He's still doing a bunch of random jobs. He was a bouncer. He was a truck driver. He was a dance instructor. Mm-hmm. He was saying in the book, he was like, I didn't give my family enough time. I hung out with the truck drivers too much. At this point, now he's driving the trucks. And I believe this is in the movie as well. I think this is where the movie kind of picks up. Because mm-hmm. he's driving the trucks, which yeah. is key. He's driving the trucks, and there's this short Italian man who helped fix his truck somewhere in upstate New York. He was like, oh, I thought he ran the gas station, or I thought he was just some random old guy helping me out. <laughs> this is Russell Bufalino, the Joe Pesci character, who has just is just by pure happenstance, and then they don't interact with each other, and that's just that, and la-di-da. But this is where the truck stuff comes in, because he does start meeting people, hanging out at the bars mm-hmm. with the truckers, with the union. It's whispers in the wind of his mind of, of joining the union, that kind of thing. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you can sell this meat on the side. But again, this is the start of him getting into It's not quite the mob yeah. yet in the mafia, but it's like everybody is just turning the you know turning their head he has one a great way. line with his lawyer he's meeting his lawyer uh and he, and the lawyer is kind of having the the real to real with him by the end of their meeting being like well, yeah, are you what's the real deal are you guilty he goes i i work for those people real real hard when i ain't stealing from them. <laughs> <laughs> they both go mm. uh, yeah. there's a lawsuit that happens with him in 56 though no one rats he doesn't rat 
but he has to resign from the truck driving because of that. So he starts taking errands for the mafia. Mm -hmm. This is where this comes about. He gets guys who are late on money. He stops people messing with somebody else's girl, like Mm -hmm. nothing Mm -hmm. too crazy. Just get him in there. strong arm. Mm -hmm. And then this is where it starts with him being the Forrest Gump. There is this uh, Appalachian, which is a a city in New York. And this happens in 57. This is where all of the big mafia bosses meet up from all over the place. Mm. And police got wind of it because... There were a bunch of fancy cars and and butcher shops were being sold out of meat and whatever, and they captured like fifty of them because they were they were just like, look at all these fancy cars just parked yeah. at this random place. Something's going on. <laughs> and allegedly, Frank says that he drove Russell up to that meeting. So uh-huh. this is just one of his little moments where he was <laughs> yeah. like, "Yes, I was. I in, was there. I was in mob <laughs> boss history." He asked me to do this little errand for him and drive him up there. So the next thing that is big in terms of the history that comes about is. He's doing all these little errands. He wants to become a teamster, though. At this point, he's divorced from his first wife. He said there was no love. It was all just drinking and ego. Mm. Like, he regrets it all. And Russell gets him on the phone then with Jimmy Hoffa. And he says the first words that Jimmy Hoffa said were, I heard you paint houses. And he says, and I do carpentry work, too. Interestingly, he says on the phone there, he was like, for a minute there, I thought it was Patton, referring to George Patton, the army general mm. that was crazy in World War II. Like they had the same energy, which mm-hmm. you're talking about the connections of how he's kind of groomed for this. It's like, oh, here's a strong leader who's very vocal and over the top with his demands. Yeah. I can deal with this. Fits right in. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's such a strange, a strange hinting of energy that gets passed around that I'm always kind of fascinated. It's like, well, how do how do some people click and how do some people not? And, mm-hmm. and I find it so fascinating when that like that like I felt like I was talking to Patton. I was felt like I was talking to yeah somebody else. You know, like oh, I can talk to you. Mm-hmm. But now that he's gone to Detroit, he's a part of Local 299. He's a taxi organizer. They're doing pickets. They're doing all the the union stuff. He's doing it for Hoffa. But he's also doing hits and random stuff. He said he had to go do a hit in Chicago. And he says in the book it was kind of like his father making the beer bets with the kids again, Mm -hmm. where it's like, I bet that you can go, my kid's stronger than you, and go beat him up. He just felt like it was that with Hoffa. Mm -hmm. Again, just being like, hey, go take care of this guy in Chicago. Just groomed Um, for it. Mm -hmm. It's it's fascinating. Another historical moment that he feels like he was involved in, or at least had some Mm -hmm. privy to, is this other mafia guy, Giancana, that he would fix the election in Illinois for Kennedy, and Kennedy would help them in Cuba because they had a lot of real estate and gambling and work over there. And so Kennedy would do some work to fix up Mm -hmm. Cuba for them if they would help him win the election. And that's something that apparently... He knows about wow, what happened. Wow, yeah. And see, and all that is kind of taking place with the, as the Kennedys rise to power. Mm-hmm. And if you are acquainted with any of, of, of that, you know the Bay of Pigs is just on the horizon. And so you're getting some context as to perhaps the motivations that, you know, that are, are curtaining this. It's multifold. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, is that there's some mafia influence. Yeah. In their regard, yeah. So then the next the next Forrest Gump moment for him is this Joe Gallo murder that you mentioned yeah. at the Clam House. Uh, he says he was involved in that. At this point, these they're very be- famously unsolved. It's kind of like a, a touristy spot for like yeah. people who are interested in mob culture. If you're you know if you're into that kind of stuff, you know where this is. And if you're passing through that part of town, you're going there. Mm-hmm. 
he just mostly this part of the book is him just saying how much he loved working for the Teamsters. Like that mm-hmm. was his primary thing, and then his secondary thing was doing random hits for the mafia and mm-hmm. going around mm-hmm. the United States and just killing thirty people. And that was all doing, right. Yeah, but I really like working for this. Really like working for the truckers. That's that's what he was all about. And he had heard Hoffa because this was not unknown that Hoffa wanted to kill Bobby Kennedy, who is now at this point the attorney general who has the Get Hoffa squad, and they're really trying to pin him on crazy stuff that he's doing, a la the pension loans. There was a film project based on Bobby Kennedy's book called The Enemy Within about mm-hmm. Hoffa. And uh, I bet I think, that would be a fascinating I think point Paul Newman was slated to be on it. It got abandoned because there was this guy Schulberg who wrote the script for this producer. The producer died suddenly. And according to this author, he's saying the deal with 20th Century Fox for this thing based on the book died when, and I'll just quote him, a labor tough walked right into the office of the new head of the studio to warn him that if the picture was ever made, drivers would refuse to deliver the prints to the theaters. And if they got there by any other means, stink bombs would drive out the audiences. What? So there was pressure from the mafia at 20th Century Fox. And then Columbia and Paramount, they're all like, well, we're not going to make this then. Oh, wow. Because of the truck drivers. Because of the Teamsters. When that was they this? Ha- this was... Uh, in the 60s, Bobby Kennedy's book came out called The Enemy That's Within about Hoffa. Yeah. Yeah, we're not. It's gonna... like a mob tactic just played out just squarely through the union and public view. That's kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so love that, it. So that movie did not get made. So and then the other thing that uh, he goes into in the, in, the, in the historical thing is Hoffa inciting the JFK killing, which is all conspiracy and who knows anything about anything. But tying into all this stuff, he was saying that he even had was in charge of one of his little errands that he did was bringing this duffel bag with guns and shipping him to Dallas and all this stuff. Mm. And then that is his little piece of the puzzle My in God. terms of helping with the whole assassination. Well, they they definitely had a, a whole uh, segment of him picking up weapons and then getting them shipped to Cuba, which mm-hmm. then incites the Bay of Pigs fiasco. So, and then he's just like eating cereal, watching the news mm-hmm. is like, a war plays out 90 miles off of yeah. the Florida coast. He's yeah. like, well, weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like I didn't see people loading rocket launches into my truck last week. Yeah, he they, they, they do have in the book a lot of different things that he says <laughs> that he was somehow pr- just like the middleman involved in all of these major events from the 60s and 70s. They do get Hoffa at this point on not even the stuff that they wanted to get him on, but it was just that he was tampering with the jury. In the in the oh case God. that they were, it was like, dude, you're what? fine. So what what they ended up getting, they, he got eight years because they had tried to have this trial in Nashville, and then he bribed and tampered with the jury and all this stuff, and then they moved it to Chattanooga, and then that's what they got him for. So he got eight years for that for the for the thing oh that he gosh. was trying to stop doing, not even the thing that they had him on trial for. The the turn here, and which is why we don't know anything necessarily about Teamsters and labor unions and all of that, is because this guy Fitzsimmons, or just Fitz is what they call him in the book, he becomes the president while Hoffa is in jail. And another historical moment is with this Irishman is that he gave, he says, half a million dollars to Nixon to pardon him for oh. being in jail, which eventually does happen, is Nixon yeah. pardons Hoffa. And he's saying that's the reason that that happened, was because of mm-hmm. a huge bribe. And now that we know Nixon, it's like, maybe he was taking money. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. You know? Yeah. It's um, all plausible. To I mean, it's like, maybe. Yeah. 
That's why it all this is all a big maybe. Maybe, but or it maybe. is interesting. It's like it's not that it's boring or not interesting. You go like, oh, it's. I like looking at it as a positive of like maybe. And it also could not have been Frank Sheeran who did right. any of this. Right. It could have been right. somebody else, and he just heard about it and he says he did it. Yeah. But he could have killed the guy that did it. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But he's he's not like. But these it doesn't are all... sound crazy. And what happens to like how it plays out doesn't isn't like fantastic. You go, well, maybe. Yeah. So whatever happened, the the thing that got Hoffa was the fact that he did get pardoned, but there was a clause in his pardoning that he was he could not run for president of any labor union or office until 1980. They got him. And so this Fitzsimmons guy was like, oh, well, once I get out, I'm just going to do the thing in 76. If he had just stayed in jail, he would have been able to run again in 76. Yeah, yeah. And that was the whole thing. It's kind of interesting. Getting out has really kind of teed him up for what for what happened. The whole thing. It just it, it is the inciting incident for how he gets in trouble because he will not stop. Mm-hmm. He went, if he just thing. stayed in jail, maybe there would have been an avenue to get involved. But he tried to get in the middle of the momentum that was already carrying on mm-hmm. without him. So you and the can't reason, just like yeah. pop out of jail and be like, "I'm back, baby." It's <laughs> and like the it reason work like yeah. that, dude. The reason he went in jail was he because he was trying so hard not to get in jail. <laughs> And then he got out of jail, and then they were like, well, fine, but you can't do what you did. And so then he goes on a rampage because he says that's illegal because you can't get – it's like you can't add another clause to a pardon. It's like you pardon him for the crime, but then give him punishment for a different crime. That's up to the judge and the jury, not the president. That kind of thing. So he has legal grounds for it. Interestingly, Watergate happens months later, whether or not they knew about that. And then we're like, well, screw you, Nixon. We're going to get you back. Who knows? But yeah. In 1973, his parole ends, and so he's able to fight this and try to become the president. But of course, now he's all up against the mafia and the mob. They're like, no, stop. Stop doing stuff. Like, we got Fitz in as president. Just like, go your own way. Everything's fine. We're going to be fine. And he's like, I'm going to tell everything about the mafia. This is my union. Yeah. (laughs) And so then this is why they're saying Fitz's weakness was being a benefit to the mob. Like he was a lump. They said he was a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> That's what they described him as. He'll melt in a second. Portly old yeah. peanut butter sandwich. Yeah. That's what he was. But the mafia wanted him. It's like, we don't want Hoffa anymore. We want this guy. Yeah, He's we, want, be we can fine. get anything we want out of him. Look, he, he squeeze, you squeeze him. Yeah. <laughs> we can get anything out of him. In 1974, they have an appreciation night for Frank Sheeran, which shows how important he was to the mafia and to these efforts. There was also a meeting at this point between Hoffa and Russell, and Russell said, according to Sheeran, some people think you don't have an appreciation for Dallas, implying Uh, the Kennedy assassination uh and what he did. And then, of course, this is when he paints houses, and they're like, hey, Sheeran, you got to get him. And so this is the whole July 30th, 1975. Yeah. They think it's going to be a meetup. Hoffa is, you know, and then this is where everybody's like, well, it could have gone a million different ways. Yeah. But according to Sheeran, then this is what happens in the movie is when he kills his friend. An ultimate betrayal, mm-hmm. but an ultimate loyalty because at the end of the day, he's fight, he's he's in line with the mob and he's in line with the union because at this point, Hoffa has kind of transcended sides and, and Hoffa can't see that. And that's what's fatal. Uh, and this happens in 75. His daughter, Peggy, is 26 years old. She said, I don't even want to know a person like you. And he said they never spoke after that. So, Do you want to talk about the daughter stuff? Because there's, I've heard some, yeah. some uh, you know, talk around 
the Peggy character and how that is portrayed and how that point comes across. <laughs> I saw, I think I saw a headline that says, uh, Anna Paquin becomes moral center. And then it was a, a double headline. It was like, she has seven words <laughs> in this movie. And so they go on uh, talking about in the time we're in now, is this a decent enough role for a woman actress of that stature? Right. And I actually think they're missing the point because, again, this story takes place over the course of 30 years. Multiple actresses play this character. Anna Paquin only plays it through the back half. And the entire point of that character existing at all is that the relationship dissolves. Yeah. The relationship does not exist. And so you can't really do that effectively with a character that is constantly professing everything that they're saying and feeling directly to the protagonist. It it's about work. how Frank screwed up and is going to be lonely forever. The only way you can feel the ultimate takeaway of this relationship is for her to not say much of anything at all. And that should be emotionally where you are by the end of the film mm -hmm. going, oh, my God, he's alone. Yeah. I get the argument there. I mean, certainly I wish there was more Anna Paquin in the film. Just, I like Anna Paquin. She's a great actress. It's a, in, a, in, a, in a movie with, you know, incredible uh, cast and crew. But it almost is a testament to how good she is that she doesn't have a lot of lines. Right. I mean, somebody at Variety or something said she becomes the moral center <laughs> of the film. How does that happen with a character that has seven lines? Well, I'll tell you how it happens is it is impactful. It's emotional. Mm -hmm. It does work. Yeah. And that's the point is she doesn't talk to him. Yeah. And to see how lonely this guy is, he was 62 years old and he still had 18 more years in prison. So in 1991, he got parole for medical reasons at 71 years old. And then that's where he's in the nursing home. Mm -hmm. And so the, the author of this book then is the lawyer who works in medical malpractice and he talks to him and in the last five years of his life is when he visited him. And this is where he lends the validity to what this guy is saying. He's like, this wasn't Frank on a stand at a jury trial for three days. This was five years of life <laughs> going and talking to him, talking with him on right. the phone all the time, hundreds of hours of recorded as well as written, as well as just being with the dude. If you're in that position, I could very well understand how you could come to believe that most of what he's saying is the absolute truth. Yeah. I'm of the, I'm personally, maybe. That's where I say, yeah, I, yeah. maybe, I don't know. But if I'm sitting there with the guy looking in his eyes and he's telling me I did all this and, and you know, and I'm seeing how sad he is, I could kind of, I can start to believe that to be the truth, maybe. Yeah. And the final interesting bit as far as him and the validity of it all uh, De Niro reached out to him after the book came out and said, mm. hey, let's let's meet up. They worked with the screenwriter and Martin Scorsese together. It was supposed to be just like an hour thing. They talked for four hours. Mm. Um, the writer, Steve Zalian, wrote Schindler's List, who he won an mm. Oscar for. He also wrote Mission Impossible, Gangs of New York, American Gangster. So he knows the scene. Well. <laughs> but at the time also, in 2014, there's another investigative journalist, Dan Moldia, and uh, he called De Niro and was like, I know I don't have much time with you because you're busy, but like you're being conned. Mm. This isn't real. Mm -hmm. Like I've been working. There's hundreds of people. The FBI had over 200 agents and spent millions of dollars. Oh, like, my gosh. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, no way. Really? Don't make this. Yeah. Obviously, De Niro's a smart dude. Scorsese's like they made it anyways. So the interesting thing is even if it is or isn't real – doesn't that make it all the more poignant and sadder to realize right. that, like, here's this guy who just lied about all this stuff. Is there any absolution for him in 
the fact that now his family is going to be wealthier yeah, it doesn't because change of it. his outcome at all yeah whether it's true or not he still ended up in the exact same place totally alone totally obscured from his family his People... daughter did not talk to him for the rest of his life that's very real you don't could it be fantastical is he is he the force gump of crime of organized crime or is he just a nobody who wanted to be special and wanted to be someone at the end of the day uh, when it comes down to where that dude ended up it didn't change a thing yeah the irishman fascinating the reason it said i heard you paint houses at the beginning was because they had worked so closely with this author mm. charles brand on the script and they had that meeting and they thought that it was monumental enough to put the title of the book as well as the title of the movie i loved it in the thing i yeah. loved it um real quick before we go i did we didn't get to talk about i just loved uh some of the conspiracy theories around what happened to jimmy hoffa and i think we'd be remiss to not say one of the more ridiculous ones um was that they had posited that maybe he was buried under the New Jersey Giants football stadium. Which there's doesn't a, exist now. There's a, there was a very famous hump, uh, right? I can't remember what yard line it was on, but it was yeah. very famous. And people, you know, players would trip on it. And it was notorious to, you know, there's a hump and nobody knew it was there. They even went as far to have it x-rayed. By uh, Mythbusters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was it Mythbusters? Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I remember having seen that. And I, it's like, I think that's kind of might have been some of my introduction to Jimmy Hoffa at all. Yeah, um, not but that, that's it. That's as as wild as it got. I had one little additional thing yeah, to yeah, add. Yeah. We didn't talk too much about Buffalino, the main mob guy, but his influence yeah. spanned into movies as well. So he had allegedly final script approval of the movie The Godfather. What? Because what <laughs> happened was Francis Ford Coppola rejected Al Martino, who was going to play Johnny Fontaine. They were like, "You're not what? a professional actor." You're just a singer. So Martino called Buffalino, who reached out to the Paramount head, Robert Evans, and then Martino got the part. And so this author, just at a random writer's conference, talked to Wanda Ruddy, who is the wife of the producer of The Godfather, Al Ruddy, and she said, yeah, Russell Buffalino had the final script oh approval. Oh, my gosh. So that was why that guy got the part. And they were just – and Francis Ford Coppola was like, well, we're not going to show your face. You're not a good actor. And he was like, I don't care. I just want to be in the movie. And so if you look at the goth, like they don't show his face. <laughs> That's amazing. So Buffalino has – Is the actual godfather. Yeah, no. <laughs> so Buffalino has influence of everything that has informed mobster, you know, yeah. culture, you know, for the last 50 yeah. years. We're not going to make this years. movie about Kennedy. We are going to make a movie about the godfather. <laughs> Just pulling strings. Who is this man? This is insane. Yeah, it's all connected. It's all connected, man. How incredible. Yeah. I I love this show. I love being... You never know what we're going to cover. Everything's based on a book. It's incredible. What is your favorite adaptation? Let us know. Yeah. I'm interested. I want to know. At IlliteratePod on Instagram. Send us a message. Let us know. And we will catch you all next week. Later. Later.